0: Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency designed Future Formula, a personalized anti-aging formula prescribed by a dermatology provider to treat fine lines, wrinkles, dark spots, and more. Agency has clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than over-the-counter retinol. Future Formula by Agency. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime.
1: Hello and welcome to Series 2, Episode 15 of Out with Susie Ruffle. Hello, how are you? I hope that you're having a good week whenever you're listening to this. My week's been pretty good, I've had some fun work stuff on, and I've been able to get out and about in a very socially distanced manner, uh, which has been lovely, I've been on a couple of bike rides, so yeah, I'm feeling pretty good today. Um, I hope that you are too whenever you're listening to this. Thanks so much to all of you that got in touch after Stephen's episode last week. It seemed lots of what he said resonated with lots of you. Uh, If you haven't listened to that episode yet, have a listen to it. It's a really great one. Oh, I just received an email. I mean, it's all go here this morning. It's all go here this morning. You'll probably hear the cat crying in a minute because I won't let her in the room. Yes, thank you to all of you that got in touch um, after Stephen's episode. Uh, I really appreciate you reaching out. Um, If you want to get in touch, please do the email as ever is hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. I love receiving your emails. They often stop me from doing the work I'm really meant to be doing, but I don't care. I really don't care, because I love reading them and I love receiving them. Um, This week's episode is with one of my dear, dear friends, Jen Brister. I think you're really going to enjoy it. I think it's a real special one. But, I mean, I think they're all special. I think they're all special, and I'm so proud of all of them. And something that keeps coming up in the emails that I'm receiving is lots of people saying... Thank you to me for creating the podcast, and you're right, I created it. It's, it, I mean, I don't think it's the most creative idea I've ever come up with, it's just chatting to people, which I love doing anyway, but um, I do I, I do appreciate you all getting in touch to say thank you. Uh, but it's not really me. I mean, it is me, of course. Um, I'm chatting to people and I'm doing the research, but it's the incredible guests that we have on the show that are so willing to share their stories with me and allow me, and therefore you, to be a bit nosy. Um, but I am so delighted how many of you get in touch and it uh, really moves me, it really, really does. Okay, let's have a couple of emails. Dear Susie, I'm going to get the obligatory compliments out of the way first and say thank you for the podcast and the great guests you get to interview. I've been a fan of your stand-up for ages and saw you at the 100 Club back when we were allowed to go into dingy basements with lots of strangers. Oh my God, I miss Comedy Club so much. Coincidentally, I think Jessica foster Q was there that night as well, and I especially loved her episode of the podcast too. I know that exact night you were talking about, me and Jess went for a beer afterwards. To my story, I always felt queer, and it had been kind of a running joke amongst my friends that I was the lesbian of the group. But I knew I wasn't fully gay, having had a few short relationships with men, but I had flings with both men and women. I wasn't happy with defining it. I was just getting off with whoever I fancied in that moment, and I was lucky to never feel ashamed or pressured into hiding anything. And the main reason I didn't tell my family was purely because I didn't want to discuss my sex life with them. It was only after a friend explaining their demisexuality to me that I learned a bit more about the subsections of sexuality and that I could be attracted to different genders in different ways. I learned that romantic attraction can be separate from sexual attraction. For example, it now made sense to me that I only fancied men physically and I wasn't interested in a romantic relationship with them, hence the short-lived relationships. But with women, I was attracted to them both physically and romantically, hence my first proper long-term relationship with a woman, causing me to come out fully at the ripe old age of 28. (laughs) I mean, it's really not old. Last year. I was lucky that my parents were fine about it and only a few awkward moments where I had to explain to my mum that you cannot ask who the man in the relationship is. Although I have said I'm attracted to genders in a different way, I would technically describe myself as pansexual. There's always an exception to the rule and I'm willing to fancy anyone and everyone in every which way. This relationship that caused me to come out is currently on the rocks due to, amongst other things, being forced apart by lockdown. Also, not helping that my mum is kind of glad because she holds out hope that I'll embrace the straight side of my bisexuality, find a nice boy and have babies instead. It's not easy being heartbroken in lockdown, where I can't just go to the pub and get drunk and cry and cuddle my friends, but this podcast and the message of hope it brings is certainly helping, so thank you. And that's from Sarah who said that I can use her first name. Thank you so much, Sarah. I'm so delighted that you're enjoying the podcast so much. I'm constantly learning about the different aspects of um, LGBTQIA+. Um, So thanks. I've just learned a bit more as well, and I'm sure lots of other listeners have as well. Um, Sarah, you've also suggested a couple of people to interview for the podcast. I can tell you that one of the people on that list I'm interviewing later on today. I'm I'm chatting to them today. So um, you'll have that podcast that you've asked for, but I'm not going to tell you who it is yet, so it can be a surprise. Um, Thank you so much for getting in touch. Let's have one more. Dear Susie, I hope you're well, and taking care of yourself during these crazy times. I've never written to anything like this before, and truth be told, I probably wrote this a dozen times in my head before putting it on paper. Well, virtually anyway. I can't begin to tell you how much your podcast has meant to me. You see, I've always thought I was a misfit, never really belonging anywhere. And even now, at 41, along with open discussions about shame, there's something that you said on your show that has particularly hit home with me. You can't be what you can't see. It's important for me to mention, I didn't come up with that. I'm not sure who did, but whoever did, I'm very grateful to them because it really makes sense. I was transplanted to a small town when I was young, where everyone looked the same, knew each other and had very conservative Christian values. I grew up with literally zero queer representation. I've always been an old soul, very analytical and logical, basically everyone's problem solver. I didn't really have any interest in boys, but I played along the best I was able to. I thought this was because I was focused on my future and my career in medicine. Looking back, I didn't really have anyone to talk to about these feelings, and truthfully, I don't think I knew what a crush was. After hearing your podcast, I've come to realise that I've probably had many crushes, just not on boys like my friends were having. Perhaps that's what made it unrecognisable to me. What I thought were normal feelings of wanting to be best friends now sound like crushes. For example, getting a ride home after practice from the pretty senior on the basketball team just to make sure I spent time with her. I could have gone home by myself, as I had done for years before. Or constantly trying to be around a girl at school and making sure we carried the same water bottle just so we had something in common. Or always noticing beautiful women but telling my friends I just wanted to be like them. The list goes on and on. I had one boyfriend in high school, but honestly, we were just really friends. We broke up in college primarily because I had one of those lovely intense female friendships, and there were many, many more of those after that. Oh my god, I can't believe I'm typing this, it all seems so silly and naïve now, I feel like an idiot for not recognising it sooner. Later when it came to dating, I never enjoyed it, but I continued trying to date men in order to fit in. Every date was a chore, I never got excited about it, and it was just something I did because, well, that's what you're supposed to do. Every time the date ended with a kiss, I literally felt nothing. I just couldn't explain to my friends why yet another date with a nice guy wasn't going anywhere. Fast forward now, I'm surrounded by queer people, including my best friend who I love beyond measure and truly consider my family. Over the last several years, I've started learning about asexuality, and I thought that might be the right fit for me, and maybe that is still true. But now that I've been listening and hearing people whose stories sound eerily like mine, I think I owe it to myself to explore the idea that I'm very likely gay. And I have you, your guests, and all of your listeners to thank for helping me realise this. The other day while I was in tears, I told my therapist I wish someone, anyone, would hear me. And I realised one of the beauties of your podcast is that now I feel heard. Now, the person that, that wrote this email goes on to say some absolutely beautiful things about the podcast, um, which, which actually made me cry when I first read them. Um, I'm not going to share them with you uh, because it sounds a lot like I'm bragging, but um, you know who you are and you know what you said. And it's, I'm so, so, so delighted that the podcast has helped you realise that about yourself. And I really hope that you have oh so much to look forward to and so many wonderful things on the horizon and relationships or a new community. And I'm so pleased that the podcast was here for you and I'm sending you lots of love across the pond. Okay. Oh, I've got all emotional today, haven't I? Okay, let's move on to today's interview. My dear, dear friend, the very funny, the very brilliant, the very, very kind, Jen Brister. Jim Brister is a critically acclaimed stand-up comedian. You might have seen her on Live at the Apollo, Frankie Boyle's New World Order, Live from the Comedy Store, or one of the various other television shows she has been on. She's also an established writer, writing for TV and film, as well as her excellent book, The Other Mother, which I highly recommend. I think she's brilliant. Her stand-up is always thoughtful, skillful, engaging, and most of all, very, very funny. But don't just take my word for it. The Metro called her outrageously funny, the Arts Desk said she was hilarious, and Scots Gay said her stand-up was as near to perfect as they had ever seen. She is also a very, very dear friend of mine, and has been a shoulder to cry on more times than I'm willing to admit on this podcast. Welcome to the show, Jen. Oh, Ruffle, that's a lovely intro. It really means it's all true.
0: Yeah, it is actually. That is I've all cried of on you cause... quite a lot. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think... Be fair, it's a two-way thing. I've had a few uh, blubs as well.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: Edinburgh blubs. Edinburgh blubs.
1: That's the other podcast that I'm doing.
0: Um. <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> You'll have to. I'll have to guest on that like six or seven times.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Sadly. <laughs> um, how are you doing, mate? Oh, I'm all right. I think it's a bit. It's we've just gone into just to create context for this particular yes. episode. We've just we're going back in, aren't we? We're going back we into are. lockdown. So, we are going back into lockdown. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't. Feel, I feel almost numb mm-hmm. to it. I feel like it's dev- going to be devastating for so many people, but ultimately, I just feel shut up. Phone, sorry, I thought I'd switched it off. Um, okay, I, I just feel a little bit. Yeah, I, I like a lot of people. I'm, I, I don't, I don't know what the hell's going on. Um, but other than that, I am a okay as long as I'm of the mind that if my kids are all right, I'm all right, and they're yeah. they're, they're having a lovely time.
1: How are you finding it creatively?
0: Well, at the beginning, the first lockdown, um, not good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I went into like a, I went into a bit of a spiral where I went, oh, I've got a career anymore. There's no, I've got no work. There's no money coming in. Uh, so I wasn't feeling at my most creative. Sure. But now I think I feel a lot more settled and I do feel like a bit more creative and I have got a few um ideas up my sleeve of things that I can knuckle down to whilst I uh, I'm incapable of earning a living mm-hmm. so yeah I don't feel I, I felt really hamstrung by the first one and this one I feel a little bit more I wouldn't say relaxed but I'm not I'm not panicked and also because we've got an end date haven't we so we're like yes. oh hopefully by this point we'll be back out again so how have you found it
1: Creatively, oh, like, I mean, um, like, up and down. Generally, generally with, yeah, mental health, like, I've been – I've tried to do, like, a couple of things a day. I'm thinking about starting cross-stitch. Hang on a second. Why does everything – you do have to be
0: prefixed with cross. There's CrossFit. Now there's CrossStitch. What's the yep. next? What are you I'm doing? Just cross. You're just, just cross, very, right? Very, very cross. Well, I can understand it. I can understand it. Well, your seems like a cry for help. Yeah. Next question. <laughs> <laughs> CrossStitch is the equivalent of adult colouring in. What are you doing? I mean, no, that's it's in... not adult
1: colouring in because oh, CrossStitch is something that is. adults do anyway. Oh. And look, I don't I, think there's anything wrong with colouring in. I've, do you colour in? Not at the moment, but listen, <laughs> in it's two time. weeks, in two weeks I'll be sending you some pictures I've coloured in, close some start feedback. In,
0: close started crocheting, and I wish I could show this to you. Obviously, it's a podcast and I can't show you, but she started this crocheting thing, and it's about two to three inches long, and that's taken her six months. So I, I don't know that this stuff helps. Listen, I think whatever you need to do. You do what you need to do. Actually, do what no you need to do. Here. I mean, I'm, you know, I, I came, I've become evangelical about swimming and. The sea. You're swimming
1: in the sea? Yeah, so cold. that's my really... very cold, Brister.
0: It's not actually. It will be cold in March because that'll be the longest period that, that the sea has gone without any warmth. So we've still got a little bit of heat left over from the summer, In even in November, believe it or not. Wow. So, so um, are you swimming
1: every day at the moment?
0: Not every day, sort of three to four times a week. Do you feel exhilarated when you get out? Yes, I yeah, feel I that's good. completely... I was going to say elated, but that that just doesn't feel like it matches
1: my personality. Um, I, no. feel... I, think, I feel I feel that you gave a really good indication <laughs> of your personality when you shouted at your phone a few minutes ago. Yeah, that's that's like, okay. We get we're getting the real brister. This is good. We're getting the real brister.
0: Yeah, I feel that that is basically encapsulates who I am perfectly. Just in that millisecond, um, yeah. The sea swimming has been really good for my mental health. I'm going to keep it going. Through this lockdown, apparently I'm allowed to still go out to the sea and have a little dip and come back out again and go home. Um, and I'm going to keep it going through the winter as, as for as long as I can manage it, really. Do you wear a wetsuit? I don't but so I have tough. I'm so tough I'm so butch stop it um <laughs> I have bought <laughs> just me wading in with a tool belt um I have <laughs> Why is I drowning take the tool belt off love yeah. um no I'm I bought these um neoprene I'm all about the neoprene uh, gloves and socks <laughs> you can imagine how hot i look yeah that's they... it's not Baywatch, but it is something <laughs> isn't it i mean if you can imagine ankle socks they are the things that mean that i can stay in the water longer because my hands and my my feet are the ones that get really cold my the, my core my body actually keeps the heat quite well so i can stay in for about 25 minutes which
1: it's not that's too bad pretty
0: good yeah and then my body goes get out get out home. run away. Get out now you're going to drown um But I can recommend. I can. It's a very middle-aged thing to do. I think. I think it's a kind of thing where you get to a point in your life you go, "I'm going to be dead soon. I really need to mark this. I need to mark the year." (laughs) That's the spirit. That's that. Yeah. Again, if you want to get a real deep understanding of who I am, that's you'll all be dead soon. Um, So it has been brilliant, and I have noticed that most of the people doing it are women of about my
1: age (laughs) we've all gone fuck it let's get in the sea let's get in the sea why not now we often start this podcast asking people to talk about sort of their early life for want of a better word so were you sort of um angry as a child <laughs> I don't think so. No, I don't think I was angry. I
0: think I was stroppy. I think my mum said I've always been a stroppy kid, but I don't think I was angry. I think um, I think I found a lot of joy in a lot of things as as children do. I mean, obviously that gets worn off as you get older, um, but um, yeah, I think as a kid I was, I think I was a happy kid. Yeah, and you grew up in Kingston. I did. Yeah, Kingston upon Thames. That was my my manner. With your Spanish mum. My Spanish mum, my English dad and my three brothers.
1: Now, if anyone hasn't seen Brista's stand up, you have to, this, I mean, similar to me, we both use our mums quite heavily in our stand up. Um, and when you talk about your mum, it is very, very funny. You've got sort of a very, I mean, calling her very Spanish. Is that a thing? Yeah, I think
0: she's a classic. I mean, I think this is a classic expat thing where they become mm-hmm. more... You know, like British people, if they live abroad, just become more British. And Mm -hmm. I think my mum, because all Scottish people in England become more Scottish. My mum is just, yeah, she's just Spanish cubed, you know. Um, (laughs) And also she keeps talking about Spain. But I was like, mum, you haven't lived in Spain since like 1966. So I'm not really sure. I think it's moved on a bit. But anyway, you can't tell her that. Was your household as a child, did you have a lot of Spanish influences? Other than my mum, no. But I mean, that's all you need. Mm Because like I said, she's super Spanish. But no, my dad is very, very English. Mm -hmm. And so it was very, I guess, slightly schizoid in that way, with this very English dad who didn't really like my mum speaking Spanish in the house. And then my mum, who's just this quite anarchic, slightly loud... And and super fun. My mum was really really fun, particularly when we were kids.
1: Well, your mum's quite fun now. Like she'll come up to the Edinburgh Festival, won't she? Yeah, she's she is fun, but she's not the
0: same. I mean, you know, my parents had a very sort of toxic relationship, and I think that really, I don't know. I think it just had an Im- well, all these things have an impact on you as as a human, but. um yeah, she 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 was just much more easygoing, and and also she's like in her seventies now, so people in their seventies are a bit more crotchety, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, but she's definitely a lot grumpier than I remember her when I was a kid. But it was a, it was a I think the, the way it was infused with Spain was in my mum's cooking. Because yeah. it was all about, you know, we weren't eating. I just, I took me years to realize I wasn't eating the same food my friends were eating. You know, the stuff my mum was cooking, squid and um, I don't know, we'd have, you know, my mum used to like, I don't know, she'd make this fried fish and then she'd make this sauce called a mojo on it. And which was just really like made with coriander and garlic and we, everything we had, everything we ate had garlic in it. And I was just, uh, English kids weren't eating, they were eating finters Crispy Pancakes. It wasn't yeah. the same sort of thing. It was a different... It's very sort of mash.
1: Yeah. Mac and, and also,
0: meat. And also my mum's accent was, I think it's not as strong now, but certainly when I was a kid, no one could understand anything she was saying. So, And so were you aware of that at school, that your mum was different to lots of other mums? No, not so much at primary school, because I went to a private school when I was at primary school, and it was a really tiny school. And... um there was like 15 kids in a class and there was only really one white kid. Most of the most of the children were sort of Pakistani or Sri Lankan. My best friend was from Fiji. Um, there were loads of Korean kids. So we all kind of had foreign parents. I think it was more when I hit secondary school that I was like, oh, I have a lot of foreign mum. <laughs> <Right. laughs> <laughs> but 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 certainly so when I got to about sort of eleven, twelve, then I was like, it became more apparent. But also I guess where I lived, it was very white and very English, but I just wasn't hanging out with those kids so much. So I didn't really notice it. Like my next door neighbours, they were Jamaican. What the kids down the road had a French mum. So I don't know. It was just I, I guess I grew up in a quite sort of that part of Kingston even then was quite multicultural mm-hmm. in a way that I think as I got to university, like particularly like when I think about Chloe, her where she was brought up in Buckinghamshire. She, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I'm one of the first foreign people she met. You know.
1: <laughs> For listeners, <laughs> Chloe is Jen's partner. It's worth noting. Um, so you mentioned before about your your mum and dad being in sort of quite a toxic relationship. Was that quite? Do you think that had an impact on you? Uh, well, I, I mean, all of these things have an impact on you. I think you don't
0: notice it mm-hmm. um, when you're a kid because you're just it's just normal to you yeah it's just normal you don't you don't sort of go well this I think this relationship should end <laughs> mother have you thought about divorce you're just yeah, like right. oh <laughs> dad's a bit of a dick and mum seems to be coping okay and and also your parents play stuff down like my mum was always like oh your your father you know what your father's like he's he can be a bit grumpy or you know what your father's like he he, he works very hard so let's not bother you know that sort of thing yeah sure so you don't, I suppose you don't notice it as a kid. I mean, I, I, I think, I tell you what, this is going to sound really backward, but I suppose I, the, the, when I really started to think, oh, hello, that actually was really a bit fucked up, was when since I've had my own children, and I think about the way our house is and the way that the home life that my kids have is when I go, oh, that's, I didn't have that. That's okay. That's interesting. Yeah. But I don't, I don't, I certainly didn't go through my childhood thinking I was having a terrible time. And what were you like as a child? Were you funny? Well, it won't surprise you to hear that I was hilarious. Um, I, I, I definitely used humour as a, um, as a means of ingratiating myself with mm-hmm. people and perhaps mm-hmm. in f- trying to not feel like the outsider because I, I went to an all-girls comprehensive school and it was a convent school and that definitely you know, when you go through adolescence, all those, Mm -hmm. you know, you're starting to get your sexualities coming to the fore. Yeah, And even though I think I realized that I was attracted to girls very young, I don't think it was something that hit me at 13. I think I knew it even at primary school. Really? Oh God, yeah. I think I I knew that I had, I mean, I can't say that was particularly, but if there was, if there was ever, if I ever got a funny feeling down below, it was definitely not looking at. A boy, a boy it was looking at a girl and i i wouldn't have understood it and i wouldn't have gone well that means i'm attracted to i just knew that i wanted to stand next to that girl or mm-hmm. or be near that girl or whatever it was and, and um when i got to secondary school then it became like oh no you are having full blown crushes on that girl that's two years above you mm-hmm. that's that's when i was like none of my friends are talking about crushes on girls yeah <laughs> so i'll keep i'll just keep that to myself. Everyone was talking about crushes on boys. So I just used to, I suppose, pretend I had crushes on boys. And did you, because I went
1: to a Catholic school. Oh, they're fun times, aren't they? Yeah, but I feel like yours was, because it was a convent school. Mine was just a Catholic school. We had like a couple of nuns that were there. But was it quite heavy on the religion at yours?
0: Uh, I mean, we didn't have a lot of nuns either. I mean, the headmistress was a nun and there were nuns that lived sort of in that school. Do you know what I mean? Oh, right, yeah. So so that's I think that's why it was called a convent, because mm-hmm. there were nuns that just lived there full time. Um they weren't and some of them had maybe had taught there before but had retired and they just still lived there. In the ground. Um, right. Was it quite religious? I mean in some ways, I guess it was quite progressive. We did have some conversations about abortion and, and talk about the pros and the cons of abortion, which I think was quite progressive for a Catholic yeah. school. For me, I just found school suffocating in every way. And it wasn't just about uh, the Catholicism. I just, didn't, I just didn't get on with it. Um, I think some kids don't. I don't know if schools have changed now or the teachings changed, but certainly when I was at school, it was very much discipline-based and it was very much you weren't supposed to question your teachers about Ask questions, which I I was very, I suppose, quite curious, and so I used to ask a lot of questions. I, mean, I was probably a bit gobby as well, you know, not not like rude, but just like, oh uh, you know, like a bit cheeky. And and at um, that school, they were like, then you were considered a problem, or you were considered that you had an attitude. Whereas I think now at school they sort of encourage kids to to ask questions and, and to be curious and be curious. Whereas when I was at school, it was like, shut up, sit down. Listen, and listen, don't talk. Just don't talk. And I was like, fuck. I was, I was fucking bored. I was so bored. I was so bored at school. Did you have a group of friends? I had people that I would hang out with and they might be in a group, but I wasn't part of that group. Right. So I would sort of bob about from group to group. Yeah. And, um, I always found groups to be really cliquey and Bit bitchy. And I thought if I never stuck around in one long enough, then I'd never get slagged off for that long, which I think was right, actually. Yeah. I think, you know, by the time people were like, oh, fucking Bristol's annoying, I'd bobbed off to somewhere else. They'd forgotten. By the time I came around again, they were like, oh, she's not that annoying. So I, I kind of did that for the entire because I was probably very annoying. And what were those crushes
1: like? Were they quite intense? I
0: think so. I think they were quite intense. But I also think I never really indulged them because I was so ashamed of them. So I think when I started to have those kind of real thoughts, I've, I would have very much gone, right, well, you stop stop, stop thinking about that. Start thinking about that boy at school or something. And I did really try uh, to have a good old wank about boys, but it just really... <laughs> I did try. Did you try. <laughs> I did try, but I'll be honest with you, Ruffle. Uh, it, it never really. Suddenly, a girl would appear, and it'd be a threesome. So it never really worked <laughs> out. And then he was in the periphery, and he wasn't. He just made the tea. And then he so, made a
1: sandwich or something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And then he bobbed off. He wasn't there anymore. I don't know what this bobbing off is all about. I've never said that before, and I've said it about twenty times now. Um, so yeah, I I I I think they probably were very intense crushes, mm-hmm. and. But I, I very much remember trying to quash any of those feelings when I was at secondary school. And I started to think about them more once I was, once I was out of there. Like once I got to about 17, I started to go, oh, you're definitely a lesbian. What are you going to do about it? But then, it, I mean, it still took me ages to come out.
1: So you, had, you were having those feelings at 17 and then I, you went off to university.
0: Yeah. So I, uh, by the time I was 14 or 15, I knew I was a lesbian. So I'd said it to myself, I was like, you are a lesbian. And then I remember being in my bedroom at the age of like 14 or 15, and I said it out loud, I am a lesbian, and I felt so horrified. I was like, that is like being, a... am gonna be a social pariah. I cannot let anyone know this, that I literally threw myself into the closet, locked the door, put a padlock, drove a car in front of it, (laughs) walked into Narnia, Picked up some panpipes and stayed there for ages. I just couldn't even conceive that that this was what I, I was like. How unfair that I should be gay. This is like the fucking worst. I mean, this is like nineteen eighty. Well, I don't know, 1988, 1989. It's Like people weren't. There were no fucking lesbians. So why was I a lesbian? Then I went to a tertiary college in Twickenham, Richmond College, and there were a couple of bisexual girls there. Mm-hmm. Everyone was bisexual. Well, I say everyone. They were. And that really intrigued me. And I thought, oh, I'm probably one of those. I'm probably a bisexual. So I just need to call myself a bisexual. But I was so far in the closet that I couldn't even go halfway, if that makes sense. I couldn't mm-hmm. even bring myself to go halfway. So I sort of, I was just sort of was asexual. Right. So I was neither straight, but I, I wasn't gay and I wasn't, I was nothing. I was just this asexual, you know, unibrowed, <sighs> closeted lesbian in a really big cardigan. And I just uh, forgot about the, the idea of having a boyfriend or a girlfriend or Or anything, and and not in a way that made me feel sad, because I I need to make it clear that I didn't feel sad about that. Because up until that point, I had never had one anyway. So it wasn't like a poor me, I can't have a relationship. Because I was like, I don't even really, didn't really know what a relationship involved or what it was. And the few interactions I had with boys kissing were so disgusting that I was like, if I can avoid ever doing that again, fine, great, I will. And so you sort of just resigned,
1: we're not even resigned yourself, but just sort of thought, okay, that's not for me.
0: Yeah, that's exactly what I thought. And, 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 I, and I know it sounds like when I, if I tell people, they're like, oh my God, you poor you.
1: Genuinely,
0: I don't remember feeling any sense of loss about that. But obviously I was depressed <laughs> because I put on a shed load of weight and uh, you, my first year at university, um, I was pretty much, um, I don't know, narcoleptic. I, I think I spent the first year of my university just asleep. And do you think that do you think the depression was solely linked to your sexuality? Um, I don't know. Ruffle, this is turning into a bloody
1: um, psychotherapy chair, isn't it? I'm um, sorry, yeah, I'm trying to get a new job now that we've gone back into well, lockdown. Yeah, trying at my
0: hand at uh, very successful. I don't know if you've heard about the psychiatrist chair on Radio Four. I think you could get a job on that. Um, <laughs> uh, was it, it? It look. It wasn't only to do with my sexuality. It was to do with my home life as well. I was very unhappy. But certainly, if you're unhappy, but on top of that, you're not being honest with yourself, I mean, obviously that compounds that and so that can lead to, I don't want to say depression because I know people with depression just don't function at all, but I certainly would have been quite uh, low-fi depression for for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I don't know, when you're in it, you're just in it, aren't you? Yeah. You don't you don't think about it. And it's not something that I was never, I was never analysing my behaviour at the time. I mean, I can look how back, you felt. yeah, in hindsight and go, oh, Barista, you were depressed then, my love. Um, But at the time I was just, I was just plodding along. And there were, you know, whilst I was, uh, I mean, my whole, t- my, I mean, basically my twenties were a series of like varying degrees of depression. But once I came out, obviously that, that, lifted a little bit so certainly a, a chunk of that was to do with being in the closet
1: so what age were you when you came out um right well, when I came
0: out properly as a full-blown yeah. lesbian I was 23 but I came out as bisexual finally when I was 21 but everyone was like <laughs> everyone was like mm, right okay Jen um bisexual are you fine because I'd I'd had a few dalliances with blokes and every time I'd come out of them, they were like, oh, how was it with so-and-so? And And I'd be like, "Oh, he's disgusting. (laughs) Fucking nubbing of a penis, rubbing against me. And they were like, that's not the usual response when you find men attractive. So, um, but when, so when I finally came out, I think there was zero surprise. Right. uh, And and also, I mean, once I came out, then I was like, God, I wish I'd done this like 10 years ago. But um, the whole um, accepting and just going, yes, you are a lesbian, and then finally coming out—that was a huge weight off my shoulders,
1: definitely. And did you sort of embrace your queerness then? Did you go to because you were never too far from like?
0: Oh my god, I was like, I was like, I was like a lesbian on flipping steroids. I I was like, (laughs) you know, when you see those lesbians and you go, "Sweetheart, just tone it down a bit, love." I was that. I was maximum. I like asymmetric haircut, flipping super dry jacket, flipping, wandering around like, um, like I was on heat. I, I couldn't believe it. The, the, suddenly I was allowed to kiss, to kiss girls and they weren't appalled or horrified or, or being sick in their mouths at the thought of it. You know, like the, the very idea that there were all of these women and had been all of these women for all this time was both just exhilarating and, and like, Oh my God, what have I been doing? Pretending to like boys for this long. And when I came out properly, it was in Australia. When you went traveling? Yeah, and I was living with a mate of mine who who had been trying to tell me to come out for about two years. And he lives in Sydney and he took me to Mardi Gras and we went on this pride march and we did all this kind of the like, the, he took me to all the lesbian bars and all the gay boy bars. And it was just, the t- I had the time of my life. It was just the best. And... Uh, I mean now I feel <laughs> I feel irritated when I go into a lesbian bar um uh but then it was just oh it was magic I'm like why is this music so loud why can't I sit down why are these everyone's so young what is this drink What is this, this music is annoying who are these people but then I was like I am having the time of my life um it was brilliant and um I did like of course, the second I came out, I thought, well, that's it. I'm just going to be getting laid left, right and centre and literally nothing. <laughs>
1: <laughs> couldn't, couldn't get any action if my life depended on it, but it was just lovely I to thought, be. I like, thought so many people are going to be listening and they're going to find that they're not going to be able to believe that.
0: Oh, well, I was still about two stone heavier than I am now and um, and I hadn't learned to pluck my eyebrows. So there's a few things there going on that probably if they saw the photos, they'd be like, oh, yeah, I can probably see why." I love. Um, but I was very enthusiastic. Sure. I'll, I'll
1: give I'll, I'll give me that. When did you start sort of doing stand-up? So you had like a couple of little comings out and then all of a sudden you're sort of on stage. So when I first started stand-up, I was massively inspired by you. I remember going to see you and being like, oh my God, she's so confident in who she is and she knows exactly who she is and she's she doesn't give a shit and she's so cool and she's really funny. And um, I was also terrified of you. Um, oh,
0: my God. I mean,
1: <laughs> you, I mean, you know better now. Yeah, I mean, now I'm not terrified of you. Now I know that you're that – you, all that anger on stage, you're just an absolute kitten. Um, that's actually my nickname <laughs> for Bristol. <laughs> oh, so, yeah, yeah I, Brista, I, I like it. <laughs> um, but how, how long was it, you know, from sort of that Mardi Gras that you thought, okay, now I feel like I'm confident enough to be someone that stands on stage? oh straight away really straight away i had no problem
0: as soon as i came out because because the 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 act of coming out was just the end of of this long running sort of self-loathing which was a complete waste of time and so the second i came out the promise i made to myself was one i would never go back in the closet for anyone mm-hmm. and two i would never be embarrassed about my sexuality because the second i came out i felt so brilliant i thought how could i ever be ashamed of this this is amazing so stand up just it just didn't make any sense not to talk about it and it and i never and have never felt any sense of um embarrassment or shame about talking about it or indeed um anything other than this is it's just an aspect of who I am. It's just, um. It, it's it's always felt very natural and very normal. So it's never even felt challenging for me to do, mm-hmm. or in inverted commas, a brave. I don't think of it like that. I just think of it as, a, so I'm just communicating with the audience who I am. And I mean, part of that is that I'm a lesbian, but part of it is that I'm an angry woman and part of it is it it now that I'm a parent. You know, there's lots of aspects to who I am and I just see that as a bit of it. And so I don't really feel like, obviously when I first started doing stand-up, if I did like a, I only had five minutes and if I mentioned I was a lesbian in a five-minute set, then I became known as that person that just talks about being a lesbian. But that's because I only had five minutes of material. Yeah, And it wasn't until I got about two or three hours under my belt that I felt like if somebody threw that at me, I could just go, well, I've got all of this that never even – I mean, the fact that I'm even saying that feels like some sort of internalized homophobia, but I don't mean it like that. But it used to wind me up that people go, wow, you just talk about your mum and being a leser. And it's like I talk about a lot of things – but because there is so much homophobia... That's all people hone in on. That's what all people hear. They just go, yeah. oh, you, you just talk about that. And it's like, also, you just talk about being a fucking boring bloke. So, And no one's yeah. ever turned up to you and gone, oh, could you stop talking about being a white, heterosexual, straight, cisgender man? Because it's fucking dull, mate. In fact, I really wish I had said that. Um, but if you are othered in any way, and, 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 and the reality is in stand-up comedy, you are othered if you are a woman, which is yes. hilarious, given that there's more of us in the planet than men. So anything outside of being a bloke and being a white bloke mm-hmm. and a straight bloke is, is othered in comedy. And I feel like now it's, we're just at the first point, I feel like, where there's so many more people doing stand-up that that is becoming... The scales are tipping somewhat, aren't they? I feel like the scales are, t- are tipping and it is... Because the scales are tipping, it's making some people very angry and it's making some people very resentful. I'm sure you've been in a few green rooms where you've had these conversations. Absolutely. Um, I've had a few. Well, it's really great that you've got a lovely Apologen, but let's face it, you wouldn't have got it if you were a leisure I'm like, oh, interesting point there. Not the 18 years of stand-up comedy I did prior to that, just being a lesbian. Fine, thanks very much. And anyway, if that's true, I'll fucking, I don't give a shit, mate, because if it is, that's the first time being a lesbian has helped me onto anything. So if being a lesbian got me that gig, I am delighted. Absolutely.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, you mentioned before about being a parent, and um, I've got to really recommend your book, The Other Mother. I mean, there's nothing else like it, I don't think, that's out there about being the non-biological mum. Now, did you wonder about sort of how much to share about that sort of thing or has it always been I'm happy to share everything oh I
0: don't share everything I make it I make it look like I'm sharing everything but I keep 90% is 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 private and the 10% that I give out is and I know that sounds insane how can that even be true but I you know the stuff that's really important to my family and the stuff that's really important to me and to Chloe nobody hears about that um but the The stuff that I wanted to talk about I feel like is our shared experiences that any parent would have or anyone thinking about having children will have, those anxieties, those neuroses.
1: Well, my mum totally loved it. She couldn't put it down. You know, and she connected so much with you. Obviously, she knows you a bit and she's been for dinner with you and also, you know, I'm her daughter and I'm gay as well and I'm hoping to become a mum one day. But, you know, I think she really... She had such similar experiences. And I think that's the great thing that the book did, that anyone could read it and go, Oh, we're all the same. Yeah. I mean, but that that's the thing about um
0: being a parent is that it, really, irrespective of who you are, whether you're adopting, you're a single parent, you're in a same-sex relationship, a lot of the the nitty-gritty of parenting is the same. Obviously, if you're a single parent, it's three times harder. But mm-hmm. The, the the actual practicalities are the same. But what I wanted to capture in the book that I didn't think existed in any other book is the fears and the neuroses and the worries that you have as the other parent um, or as perhaps a parent that is looking to adopt or isn't biologically related or a step parent mm-hmm. is your connection with the with that child. And I think those Neuroses and anxieties are really normal but I just don't think they're talked about in any, in any mother and baby book that I've read because the presumption is obviously that you're the biological mum and so why wouldn't you have a, a connection with your child that was that was the impetus for writing the book and then I also just wanted to make it as funny as I could because what I didn't want is I don't want to write anything earnest or like in deep down this is how I felt you know I just wanted to make look this is the realities of parenting. This is how I felt on our journey. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you, you know, if you are another mother or another father or whatever, you might read this and you might go, "Oh, this is, this has made me feel better because I, I felt because it's quite lonely to go through that without any person to sort of go, oh, because I had, didn't have an, I didn't have anyone to talk about it with, and I didn't have obviously my mum couldn't relate because she's the biological mother of all of her children. So I was like, who do I talk to about this? And there was no book for me to pick up. So I thought I'd really love it if other people didn't have to go through that. And yeah, so that's why I started writing the book. And I've had quite a few people contacting me since saying, you know, your book really helped me Mm -hmm. because I felt all those things that you've talked about. And now I know that that's normal and it will pass and I don't have to worry. And And I think, if that's helped anyone, then that's great.
1: Oh, I'm sure it has. It's such a great book. I highly recommend it, listeners. You've got, to, you've got to get a copy. It's really, really good. And were you worried about obviously being viewed as like the other mother or the non-biological mother? Were you scared about sort of any homophobia that you might receive or that your children might receive?
0: Well, I mean, yes, The that's the quick answer. And that is definitely why... Uh, Chloe and I moved to <laughs> to Brighton because we wanted to bring our children up in a city where I, I suppose being gay or lesbian, I mean, you know, you know what Brighton's like. I mean, you're you you you're not going to be othered here because I mean, mm. we've got one of the biggest prides in the country and it's well known for being a, uh, has a large gay community. And and I, and I just thought, you know, there'll be lots of, there'll be other parents that are same sex parents. So my kids don't have to, be the only ones that don't have a mom and dad and and you know to to a greater extent that's true i mean but but weirdly certainly at the school they're at
1: we haven't met any same-sex parents so that still make me laugh when you told me that because when I remember when Chloe was pregnant and it was like we're going to move to Brighton we're moving to Brighton everyone sort of nodded and thought yeah that's probably the best thing to do Jen yeah we understand yeah that's great and then a little while ago you said to me there's not one gay parent that I found <laughs> in the whole school I don't know any that's so and, funny and then there's a school like nearby which is
0: like I don't know like an extra five minute walk and um Apparently, there's like six, there's six lesbian mums there all in the same year of my kids year. And I was like, oh, for really sake. should have done that extra five minute walk. Why did not we walk an extra five minutes? No I mean, the kids don't care. And, and as you know, we've got friends here that are, um, of course, are same yeah. sex parents. And so they, you know, they're fine. They don't seem to notice actually. Six.
1: six. So I feel like it's really important. I mean, we, we we're, we're quite good mates, but I feel like it's, well, I mean, we're very good mates, but I feel like it's um, kind of important in this scenario to sort of say, like, I feel like your voice in stand up has been really instrumental. Like there's so many queer acts that are around now, certainly queer women that are in comedy. And I think that you really, I feel like you really paved the way for lots of us in talking about exactly what you wanted to talk about. And I feel like you've done it, like you did it about your sexuality and then I feel like you've done it again because I can't think of any other queer parents that talk about it on stage. Um, not in this country.
0: I mean, I think that might be different in the States, I think, um, like Wanda Sykes does, doesn't she? Of course, um, yeah. And um, but I, think it's kind I don't of- know if Tig Notaro does
1: now, I'm not yeah, sure. Yeah, maybe she would. Yeah. But I think it's kind of ground. Breaking that you've done that because I feel like, you know, I just think it's sort of normalizing our experience. So people go to a comedy night and it's a mixed bill and you're on. I feel like it just, I don't know. I I feel like there's so many people that will walk away from one of your shows with an understanding of what my life looks like or, you know, some a queer person with children. I, I don't know if you know how, I don't know, how instrumental I think you are in sort of paving the way. Oh, love.
0: Um, I
1: have never thought about it like that at all um I think my career has been made easier because of people like you and Zoe Lyons and uh maybe Sandy Toxvig, but just because you existed and therefore I knew that I could exist in that space because I had come to see you before I did before I really went for it with stand up
0: um well if if that's true then that's that's uh, you know that's incredible and i i that means a lot if that if that's the case um I think you know the same could be said for you there's a lot of young women who perhaps aren't even aware of me, don't even know of my existence, but, you know, connect directly with your voice. And I think, you know, stand up. Often it feels like you're, because it's so ephemeral and you are you can feel like you're in a a bubble, can't you? Because you're traveling, particularly you and I for a long time have both been club comedians. And for those people that might not be aware of how comedy works, for many years you work as a circuit comedian in clubs. And clubs... I've been dominated by men for many years and so the expectation yeah so the audience that's what the audience are expecting and so when you walk on stage as a woman particularly as a lesbian it can be quite combative it can Mm -hmm. be quite um I would I mean I've been doing it for so long I wouldn't say scary but you can feel the tension you can feel the anger yeah I felt scared at one point certainly
1: earlier in my career
0: yeah, there have been times, I think you and I have talked about a particular club in Wales, which we mm-hmm. both had problems with, where every time you and I have gone up separately, obviously, we're never on the same bill.
1: Um, <laughs> I mean, imagine that. It's got to be a charity gig for us what to be all together. going
0: on? It's got to be a lesser gig, hasn't it? Um, two two fucking lesbians on the bill. Um, but those sort of places... When I first started, I used to take a certain amount of pride at being able to manage those rooms, mm. handle those rooms, yes, put totally. down the person that's that's hurling abuse at me. But as I've been doing it for such a long time now, I'm like, I have no patience for it. I have no patience to play that, to, to work that tightrope of, I'm going to... Be the entertainer that also manages the person that's saying homophobic things to me, also managing this person that's a misogynist, also managing this person that's just drunk and shouting crap. Now I'm just like, I just like sh- I just can't, I don't have the patience for it because I've done it for so long. And I'm like, well, it's 2020 and you can all, if, if this is how you feel, don't fucking leave the house, mate. Comedy isn't for you. Because I think a lot of the time people think comedy is about them. And it's like, mm. it's not, it's about... <laughs> I'm so sorry, this is about me. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm really sorry for anyone listening to this that has ever thought going to stand-up comedy is about them, just though it's not. It's about the performer. And And, uh, we cleverly try and make it seem like
1: it could be about you, but mainly it's it's back about me. It's it's entirely about me. (laughs) So um,
0: having that space now to be able to tour is, is, without wanting to sound like a complete prick, which is really hard when you say earnest things like this, but it's such a privilege to have Mm -hmm. people that choose you because normally I'm on a bill with whoever and like they don't they don't no one's come to see me no one can, I'm just there it's just a just an accident but people that have actually taken a night their their time to to come and see me i mean even now i'm like are you mad um i and i just love that it's just it's changed Uh, how I feel about performance I think I was becoming quite sort of cynical and I was very tired and exhausted with stand-up it it, it can wear you down that's the -hmm. circuit can the circuit can wear you down and I feel like I'd got to the point where I was like okay I've I don't know how much longer I can do this for and then I just got that break with the live of the Apollo and then got the opportunity to tour off the back of that and that has meant that's reinvigorated how I feel about stand-up and that's my last two shows, Meaningless and Underprivileged, have been fueled by that new Zest. energy. Yeah, new energy. I think and and excitement to communicate what I want to
1: on stage, which you know, and it's giving you the space to do it because you know you've got an audience that want to hear what you've got to say.
0: Yeah, which which is which is still mad, but yeah. So people will give you that space, and 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 because you have that space, you can take a little bit longer in bits of your show to say something that you really want to say which I would never have had the courage to do before because I'm like, I just got banned the jokes, 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 Mm -hmm. jokes, and get out an hour. Thank you. Bye-bye. And I'm not saying I don't do that in my shows now. I like my shows to be an hour of stand-up, but if I can give myself like 45 seconds or or up to like even a minute just to say the thing I want to say before the joke comes, then I can do that now. And I think that's, yeah, I feel lucky to be able to do that really.
1: Jen I've loved this conversation now I always ask the exact same question at the end of the podcast and maybe let's go back to you when you like uttered to yourself that you were a lesbian lesbian. in your bedroom when you were I don't know between 88 and 89 you said and you sort of hated yourself for it if you could pick up a phone to that girl or if you don't want to think about it as yourself maybe someone that's listening that feels similar to how you did then right now if you could just give them a little nugget of advice for the future what would you say?
0: Um. Oh, I just say look it's going to be okay you're going to love yourself you're going to have a great time you're going to have the best orgasms of your life and um, just chill out love it's fine that's what I'd say and also I, I guess the most important thing is is that
1: it's okay to to, to like yourself perfect that was brilliant Brista
0: you're welcome
1: thanks mate